Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, this week we're going to have a chat with uh, the very remarkable Kevin Hurley, who is um, every person I've ever spoken to who's ever known or worked with Kevin describes him as a bit of a legend and um, yeah a real character so strap yourselves in so uh, this week everybody um, I'm delighted to be speaking to uh, a man who uh, there's not many people can be described as a bit of a legend in policing but this is definitely one of them um, this is a uh, Kevin Hurley so Kevin welcome on to the uh, Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast if you want to just give a little intro into who you are hi yeah thank you very much Ian for um, inviting me along at this uh, interesting period of time in policing history yeah, um, what can I say? Well, I'm one of nine people who have or are still serving in the Metropolitan Police. Dad was in, mum, uh, civil staff. Uncle died in service. My two brothers were uh, detectives with me. In fact, we were both on Southeast Regional Crime Squad together. Uh, one eventually, after retirement, went on to work for the National Crime Agency. Uh, then I've got a son on the uh, anti-terrorist squad and... Um, Two nephews are on the Met Task Force, or otherwise known as the Flying Squad. So, so they've got a proper uh, their dad, a proper policing family. Then, hundred percent. Well, I I actually think Ian, it's a I, when last time we checked, we think it's the record of nine of immediate family all in the police together. And in fact, at one time, my two brothers uh, and I were all serving with my dad. Uh, at the same time, all in the job together. So uh, an unusual uh, situation. I think he was at uh, Greenwich. I was at Rochester Row. Whereas my brother, I think he was on the regional crime squad. And I think the other one was out in Penge or somewhere. Yeah, it's a funny one because my, my brother was in the Met as well with me at the same time. Um, albeit he he left uh, after about doing about 12 years. I think he'd done 12, 15 years, something like that. And he's now a criminal it's, barrister. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's an interesting family yeah. dynamic, isn't it? So tell us... Well, a policing, bit. it's a family business. You know, I mean, what is interesting, a lot of people don't get this uh, about policing before I go and talking about myself, but I'll cover it when I'm there, is how many people 
join because they've got familial links, either their mum or dad was in or their uncle or brother, um, which is one of the challenges about diversifying the workforce, actually. Hmm. Policing is such an unusual job and it's such a step for a young kid to take to join that lot, the old bill, 5 yeah. or whatever they happen to be called. Hmm. Um, that unless they've got some way of breaking down that barrier, a social barrier in some way, they won't necessarily step across. But yeah, I mean, that's me. Um, yep. did 30 years in the Met. And then I've, I've kept my hand in, in policing for the last 10 years. I was the first elected independent police and crime commissioner in Surrey. Uh, I have a wry smile at that, much mm -hmm. to the disappointment of the Conservative Party in their bastion of conservatism, where all their 11 members of parliament, uh, there are, of course, all conservatives, most of them in the cabinet at one time or another, depending on where they are with Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I've done a couple of tours in Afghanistan, one working for NATO as the senior police advisor there, um, trying to help the corrupt, dreadful, wicked government that we poured all our money into, um, con their people, uh, that the Taliban weren't the better deal. And I'm not saying they are, but the, the mm. other government were pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, and then I came back again last year before I had to run away because of the Taliban as the senior police advisor for NATO and all the um, international donors. So this uh, copper uh, son from Greenwich and Lewis from South East London ended up saying to the international governments of the world, this is what I think is most wise for you to invest your money in, yeah. in terms of uh, helping the Afghan police manage the Taliban. But there we are. So you've got uh, you've got policing running through you like a stick of rock then. Um, well, so yeah. in terms of your when you first joined, so what year did you join the Met? I joined in 1979 um, and uh, went to Cannon Row, which is the building now. Uh, well, it's part of the new Cannon Row is where Scotland Yard is now on the embankment. We yeah. our area then was essentially police in Parliament Square. Uh, up to St James's Park to the Palace, Trafalgar Square, uh, and that little bit of the West End off the back there, uh, leading down to Embankment Tube, for those who are familiar with it. They used to call us the Monument Minders, and that wasn't <laughs> far off, actually, in terms of uh, how it was. But the one thing I will say is the shifts there were the best bunch of hunters I've ever come across in the police in terms of proactively stopping inquiring stopping and searching i've ever seen anywhere i've worked in the met i've probably worked really that's uh, that's that sort of surprises right me things things were obviously quite different then because i i remember and this is this is probably this, people listening to this who who worked in um canon raw are probably going to be shouting at me when i say this but my my kind of general perception when i joined was that a lot of people who went to places like canon row tended to have a very limited experience of policing compared to those of us who went to some of those grittier inner city areas. Um, but clearly, clearly you had some good thief takers there in those days. Well, I, I mean, I would agree with you that you don't get the domestic assaults there uh, and the 999 calls, which is why everyone has to be a hunter or your board stiff. Mm. So we used to have a situation there where we'd have a bunch of us at Parliament Square or P Square, we called it. Another bunch up at T Square, Trafalgar Square, where we'd be spotting cars, motorbikes, likely people coming up and down. And we were stopping them all day long. Um, yeah. So the net result is you actually became, I go back to my point, exceptional mm. hunters mm. and spotters as thief takers. And I actually... 
Uh, I went on from there to Clapham, which you might as a DC, yep. which you might think of as a pretty busy place because I know you were there. That's right. Uh, I found I, if you uh, and I'd also worked in Streatham. I've worked in Brixton, mm. uh, two Tim Wandsworth, um, and as far out as Staines when it was met. But I'd actually say compared to the hunter ethos of the officers at Cannon Row, uh, the rest were inept, if not lazy, because as you sat, you said a lot of them used to just take the 999 calls yeah. and go to one incident after another. You either worked and hunted at Cannon mm. Row or you were bored stiff. And, no, yeah. and when you're a young person who bitterly resents the fact you weren't sent to Brixton mm. uh, and you were stuck there, you had to make some work in one way or another. So actually it was a great learning ground, although I have to say I escaped at the earliest opportunity and continually complained to go to L District, which I did manage to achieve um, within my probation. Um, that sounds fact, very, very similar. Though. Very similar to me because I I went to initially out to uh, Z District, right to Sutton, and I was I was absolutely gutted when when I got that posting. Um, in the end, you know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't the worst place to be because you know it was quite a mixed economy there, and you know you got a bit of a bit of everything yeah. there. But but like you, I was hankering for L District, and I put in. 728 and um ended up going up to uh clapham literally yeah. al almost the very day i got yeah. confirmed in the rank so uh yeah. and and yeah clapham yeah. i i loved clapham it was great so what years what year we were you at clapham was that was that early 80s well then? i was, I was DC, dc at clapham in 82 uh sergeant at streatham um very quickly in 83 um and then after that i i went to chelsea when i was an inspector DI at uh, Chelsea, and then I went back to Brixton as the DI initially main office, and then I was the DI in charge of what, what is now known as the notorious Brixton robbery squad. Yeah. Uh, but if I say so, the most outstanding bunch of thief takers um, I've ever worked with in my police career, totally focused at what mm. they were doing. Mm. Um, um, and, and funny enough, uh, we ended up with a nickname um, with the street gangs there. They called us Raddies in those days. Right. Raddies. And this was based after a name given to the Flying Squad in Kingston, Jamaica, where they called them Eradication. Right. Eradication Posse in Kingston, yeah. Jamaica, <laughs> which they then translated across here to Radication or Radication Posse. And if yeah. you're a member of Radication Posse, as opposed to the, uh, what was it called? God knows, the untouchables or yeah, yeah, whatever. Eradication yeah. yeah, yeah. posse, you became known as a raddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, and in fact, we all wore T-shirts in those days saying eradication posse. No so one you, but the Brixton Robbery Squad and the street robbers knew what it meant. So you uh, you were there during a really interesting period then, obviously, because obviously you had the riots in 81. You had more riots again later in 85, I believe. Yeah. And then um, obviously, you, uh, from a legislative point of view, you were there during the changeover to Pace, I suppose, in 84, weren't you? Well, in 84, 84, I was at um, Chelsea. No, I was, I was a DSU inspector, I think, the old TSG forerunners partly of, before the TSG got amalgamated into the S SBG. Uh, so I was on the B district, district support unit. Um, and in those days, every one of the boroughs used to have to put up a truckload of uh, 10 people um, who would pack, match up with the neighbouring borough to make a PSU, a John Tall on call group. Um, and in 85, I actually went with a PSU to Brixton in the midst of the riots. So I was kind of running around, um, frankly, batting charging crowds and stuff.
as an inspector, I didn't bother with a shield. It slowed me down. <laughs> uh, so I just used my baton. Um, uh, but I, I took a very robust approach to anyone who wanted to uh, make an insult to the cloth in those days. <laughs> But I did all the way through my service. See, that's a, that's a, that's an expression that a lot of younger people listening to this will have no idea what that means. Touch, you sure. do not touch the cloth, you know, and uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's like putting hands on a police uniform was uh, was only going to end up in in one yeah. one night. Come, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was an insult to the cloth. You spit on a police officer or assault them is an insult to the cloth, and such. Uh, matters cannot be dealt with lightly because if you back off they will continue doing it all the time and of course that's what we've been seeing for a long time in policing mm. um on the back of what we might call people saying achieve community tranquility i mean i'll, I'll digress but um uh when i was a borough commander for hammersmith and fulham um i, I had a very hands-off style for my borough we had about i don't know a thousand people there with shepherd's bush Hammersmith and Fulham, so quite a mixed bag, quite a lot of social deprivation on the northern side, you know, towards Acton, Shepherd's Bush. Um, uh, and I can remember one morning, we used to have the, the morning prayers, which by those days we were doing on a video link, Shepherd's Bush inspectors and Fulham ones, and I'd come in on my cycling gear and sit down on the floor cycling in from Surrey, where I live, and let the chief inspector or superintendent run the morning. Mm. Uh, and I can remember one day them saying, oh, we had an incident up on the White City estate, uh, where we withdrew, um, uh, you know, and I, I, I didn't say anything at the end. I said, well, why did you withdraw? She said, oh, for community tranquility. And I said, look, can I just make one thing clear? The community are not those jobs mm. and mouthy scumbags <laughs> who are chasing you uh, and making a lot of noise. The community are the school dinner ladies, yeah. uh, the disabled person who can't work, yeah. The postman, the bus driver who are watching from the balconies, yeah. their police being chased off by the yobs who make their life a misery. So under no circumstances will we ever withdraw from the state again. Yeah. You are to stand and fight mm. and call whatever backup is required. We will not ever back off any estate. We do not lose. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's such a refreshing thing to hear because, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I saw that really... Um, uh, propelled me to write the book so I mean I was writing I was writing kind of more like my memoirs really of the police really to, yeah. to give to my kids really and things like you know it's like a put this in a brown envelope and read this when I'm dead kind of thing but, yeah, but yeah. What, what what made me decide to write a book was when I saw that shameful sight of police officers running away from Black Lives Matters protesters in Whitehall in I think it was June yeah. 2020 and I thought oh my god mm -hmm. these these are these are mostly kids who they're running away from and um you know again this sounds terrible we sound like a proper pair of right old farts here don't we but you know these are these are people that back in the day half a dozen lively PCs in shirt sleeve order would have seen them off you know and yeah, we're um, not old farts Ian Ian we, we uh, denigrate ourselves so we're old farts. What we are, we are people uh, who understand what needs to be done, how the streets need to be dealt with. I don't blame those constables for doing that these days because within your book, TJF, I'm sure it makes reference, mm. because of the vacillating pusillanimous leadership that we now see in policing. And in fact, I wrote an article way back 10 years ago in the Daily Mail 
where I specifically refer to the pusillanimous leadership um, and lions led by donkeys, because mm. that's what we've now got. Mm-hmm. We've actually ended up in a situation where the commissioner has has resigned. Mm. You know, Krista Dick had many, many uh, skills, one of which was she was exceptionally intelligent, exceptionally well educated and had time for a lot of people. But mm. she was a little bit um, too quick to apologise, in my view. Mm. Um, and policing is not about apologising. Mm. It's accepting on occasion when you're wrong. But if there's a reasonable explanation, you need to go out there with a robust explanation because all this stuff, uh, and this partly comes from, because I'm also a military reservist, or I was, one of the things the military talk about in in their various campaigns is deliver various effects. One effect is deliver kinetic, kinetic mm. effect. That's obvious. You blow things up. Mm. But the other effect they seek to achieve is what they call the influence effect, which means win legitimacy, win public opinion wherever you are. Yeah. Well, the one thing that police chiefs don't seem to get in terms of the quite right view that we must have public confidence and we must have public uh, support is they need to be far more scientific in thinking about how do you deliver the influence effect? Because mm. policing is actually a slow-burning conflict that goes on day in, day out with villains, antisocial elements, jobbery. That's mm. what policing about, because if that was not the role of the police, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need them. Mm. You know, we could employ a bunch of people in uniform to go around dealing with mentally disordered people on the street as required, and even a bunch of people to go out and be social workers with some domestic incidents. The reason the police have these significant powers over the rest of us at the moment that they have given to us is because they need to deliver enforcement. Mm. And if you're going to do that as part of delivering the enforcement is delivering the influence effect. Let me give you an example mm. of that. Let's look at how police managed the Sarah Everard vigil. Yeah. I won't detract from the fact that a quite appalling psychopathic monster mm. happened to have been a police officer for a couple of years uh, and had gone off to a really a job which is frankly conflict dodging in the de- in the diplomatic patrol uh, diplomatic protection group standing there guarding buildings i don't blame people for wanting to do that if they don't want to do what i would call frontline policing and deal with the public but you've got someone involved in that mm. uh, is also a pervert in their their own time and goes yeah. on does something quite dreadful. It's appalling. It's probably second only to John Charles Menendez's uh, homicide at the hands of police in awfulness for the police. Well, certainly, yeah. in terms of how I feel, because yeah. when I when I was uh, quite close to that situation, John Charles Menendez and I heard within an hour we'd killed the wrong man. I wanted to pull my teeth out. I couldn't think of anything more awful than police killing an innocent person, you know. So let's turn back to the Everard thing and influencing. It was utterly appalling what happened. But do you know what? It was a fantastic investigation by the police. Mm. One of the most senior judges in the land, an old Bailey judge, said in 30 years on the bench, I've never been and seen such an intensive, widespread, 
speedy murder mm. investigation and proceeded to commend most of the investigation team. Who yeah. knows that? Who knows that? Mm. Where are the police getting that message out? They're yeah. not. Yeah, but yeah, let's yeah. go back now to um, Sarah Everard's vigil. Let's unpick that. What happened? We were in the midst of a pandemic that was killing thousands of people a week. Thousands of people were dying every week from COVID. Yeah. A large number of women who were understandably upset, grieving, distraught at thinking what happened to Sarah Everard and thinking that could have been me because it was shocking and it could have been another time. They decided, including uh, the future Queen of England, decided to take it upon themselves and break COVID regulations and go and participate in a large vigil, which was uncontrolled and whereby the transference of coronavirus from any one of them, the risk of it was far greatly, if you like, exacerbated. So mm. my, my feeling, if you like, as a member of the public is, how dare these people be so self-opinionated and so arrogant as mm. to think they can put me at risk as an older person of mm. getting COVID because they want to go and pour out their grief and lay down a few flowers. Yes, it was a terrible murder. And mm. yes, it's something awful that everyone should be upset about. Yeah. But there's a sense of perspective here. Yeah. That well, you I do not uh, take, if I could I, just finish and talk yeah, about, yeah, 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 about yeah, sure. where, where the police should have come at that, they should have come back like that. Mm. Secondly, where they should have come back as and said, if the crowd in the end, we, in the end, we gave them plenty of opportunity. But as the crowd became so intense and crowded, we thought we really must do something. So we deployed people in soft hats, in ordinary clothes, start to try and move crowds back. And there was some pushback from some people, including Gingerhead. Uh, I think her name is uh, Patterson or whatever her name is. The, the yep. wannabe actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 28-year-old woman. She played up in a dark, gradually, host increasingly hostile situation. Police quite rightly decided to arrest her. And because she was being difficult, they put her face down on the floor and handcuffed her behind her back. Good. You mm. play up with the police in a dark situation that's starting to degenerate. Don't be surprised if the police put you face down on the floor. Mm. That's the first response. Yep. Secondly, back to the influence effect. Several of those officers should have had their body-worn videos networked to Periscope. So what was going on should have come out straight on Periscope, straight onto live feeds on Facebook and Twitter that should have been centrally controlled by the Metropolitan Police. The Metropolitan Police needs to get far, far more nimble. In fact, police generally are much more on the front foot in the management of social media. Because if the Taliban can do what I've just told you in mm. Afghanistan, because that's what they were doing, then certainly the Met could. And if a narrative had come out where police were being reasonable and being on periscope and trying to explain, then we wouldn't have had this debacle of the leader of uh, the Liberal Democrats, the leader of or the mayor of London and so on being extremely critical of police. They might have been a bit more circumspect. Mm. And may I say, May I say, again, the commissioner should have been much more on the front foot and made that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, the um, 
where it all where it all kind of went wrong there was just I think in terms of the uh, the media coverage. The problem is, isn't it, that we have got no ability to influence what the media decide, the story that they decide to tell, or how they decide to tell it. And you know what what was completely absent for me in all of that was that um, you know that had many hours of very sympathetic, supportive engagement. That sort of you know. Uh, engagement on Clapham Common and and the only bit that actually got sort of you know pumped out to the world's media was that flashpoint that lasted probably about five minutes ten minutes at most and it's that sort of this is where I partially agree with you and actually you know my point of my argument I'm talking about influence effect is I don't agree with you I think mm. the police have got a great opportunity to influence the media but you've got to be quicker and more nimble than the media, which is why I say that mm. police should be periscoping live onto Twitter feeds, live mm. onto Snapchat, live onto Instagram, and live onto um, YouTube channels, mm. being managed by, by specialists doing that mm. and putting out what's going on there and then. Yeah. Because then the media, the media, you see the way the media works, and I've got a lot of time for the media because I've done stuff for Sky, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, uh, international media, etc. The, they are hungry for news and they're hungry for film. Hmm. So if the film is coming out and it's all over Twitter and Facebook, the police seize that empty terrain so yeah. where the police are still lacking is that afghanistan in 1819 in 2018-19 that whenever the taliban were about to attack somewhere or blow somewhere up they generally attack a police station because they, you know they of course wanted to defeat the afghan security forces they would actually film that incident before it even took place mm -hmm. so they would film the dead bodies on the ground they'd film dead taliban or whatever and they have films of people in police uniforms shooting children or whatever before it even took place. Mm. And then as the incident happened, they'd start to release it. So that by the time the Minister of the Interior and the Afghan National Police started to realise what was going, it was all over Twitter, Facebook, Instagram feed right across Afghanistan. Mm. So the Afghan security forces and police had lost the influence battle before it even started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so... You know, the kind of stuff that we should have been seeing at that Black Lives Matter stuff where police were running away, we should have had body-worn video hmm. being networked live onto Periscope, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, of yeah. the hostility that police officers were facing there and then. And if people choose to watch it, they can choose to watch it if they choose not to. And the reason why they will watch it is most people, when they come home from work in the evening or sit about at home, cannot wait to watch Line yeah. of Duty. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't even know what these programs are because I've given up. You know, the equivalents of NYPD Blue, The Bill, yeah. uh, you know, motorway cops. They can't wait to watch it because it's something different to the normal lives that everyone mm. else leads. So yeah. if they can go on to live channels, giving them the, that live feed, let's do it. And never mind mm. that some yeah. of that could well be evidence in a court case. What's more important for the police is not gaining the odd conviction at a public order event. What's more important, as we've just seen, now the commissioner's been forced out, is winning 
the influence battle delivering mm. the influence effect. Yeah. And I've got to say the MPCC, the College of Policing, and all the police forces in the country are totally inept at doing it. Mm. Yeah. As someone who uses the media... I mean, look, let, let, me, let me tell you this. Do you remember I told you I um, won the Police and Crime Commissioner election in Surrey as an independent? Yeah. How yeah. did someone with no money win 11 parliamentary constituencies controlled by the Tory party with all their money? How did I beat them? Yeah, Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With no money. I copied the way Obama won his election. And it wasn't my idea. Someone told me, you need to start doing Twitter, to which I said, what is Twitter? Mm. Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, you know, and I then started on Twitter, got a Facebook site going, a website going, and started doing that, then getting people to network me around the county. Yeah. And although the Tories were able to deploy literally, literally thousands of leafleters, I was able to get the message out on social media because people would go for it. Yeah. And if I then went and if and then the other thing that I had going for me is when I'd been a borough commander in Hammersmith and Fulham, I had one of these live TV teams came in. They did the, the Brit Cops people. You'll have seen them. Yeah. Well, they did a 10 part called Brit Cops Zero Tolerance Policing. Yeah. Well, I had all that on my websites, you know, live feeds of that where it'd be there, you know, um, and this is what the cops are doing here with, with it delivering a zero tolerance effect, all led by straight talking borough commander, Kevin Hurley. And I would mm. turn to the camera and say, they don't rule the streets. We do. Mm. Now, if you're voting for a person to be your political head of policing, that's what people want. Mm. Yeah. That's what people want. And I'll tell you how far off police are at winning the influence effect. When this was all going on, it was starting to raise the eyebrows of some of the Met Police Authority who were thinking, we don't like what's going on at Hammersmith and Fulham where they're showing the police smashing in the doors of the drug dealers, seizing uninsured cars and crushing them, putting street robbers face down on the floor, throwing violent, violent, violent fighting drugs in the back of vans. Hmm. They thinking we don't like this. So I got told at the time by my area commander, they don't like you doing, stop doing it. So I said, no, I, I'm not, I'm gonna carry on. Then I was told by a DAC, called to see a DAC, no, the public like it. I then got called up to see the deputy commissioner because my the problem that they had is of the 32 boroughs in London, we had these ridiculous balanced scorecards in those days yeah. of how much robbery you had, what was your clear-up rate, how were you doing domestic violence, etc. And there were 20 points of reference you were marked on. You were either green, amber, or red. The problem they had, there were only two boroughs in London where they were all green. One was Camden, and one was Hammersmith and Fulham. And funny enough, Camden was run by an old boy chief superintendent like me, whose name escapes me, but he was a bluff Yorkshireman, and I respected him, respected him. But enough of that. They had a problem. So the conversation with the deputy commissioner went something like this. As I turned up in his office, I might add, in full fluorescent uniform, wearing a beat Bobby helmet, because the public know what Bobbies on the beat are with helmets. They don't know what a chief superintendent is with a flat hat and a bit of silver on the front of the hat. They know what a copper on the beat is. And I wrote, and this is the way the journey went. I got on the train 
at Tube at Hammersmith and Fulham, walked along the Tube train in full uniform, telling people, get your feet off the seat, turn your music down, having a confrontation with someone and saying, produce your ticket on the railway or you'll get nicked. In which case he got thrown off because he didn't have his ticket. I would have nicked him, but I was late for an appointment with the deputy commissioner. Along the way, I bumped into an inspector who happened to be a British transport police inspector responsible for that in his half blues. Uh, and he said, oh, hello, governor. Uh, and I said to him, um, are you on duty? He said, yeah. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm on my way to a meeting. I said, um, why aren't you in full uniform then? I'm patrolling on your manor mm. in full fresh uniform, doing the job on one of your trains and your conflict dodging, wearing a jacket because you don't want to get involved. What kind of leadership is that, Inspector? And I then moved on. My point is, I then walked out of the tube, slowing down because I had a rucksack on my back. I forgot to mention that. Walked into Scotland Yard with my helmet on. I went and saw the Deputy Commissioner, who I got on with exceedingly well, I might add, Tim Godwin. Really, I really liked him. Yeah, he's nice, uh, isn't he? Good operator, good operator in my view. Um, very good for the very good for for uh, what he was doing for the public and good for the troops in my view. But another one of them. Well, well, well enough of that. As I walked in, he said, um, "Kevin, you've got to stop this. MPA don't like what's going on." Uh, and I said, um, "They said it's setting a bad image for the Met." I said, "Well, I thought you'd say that, which is why I'm carrying this rucksack over my shoulder." And I like lifted out probably five hundred emails, all put them on his desk, and I said. Those are emails from people all over the country who are saying, will you come and be our chief of police? Mm. I think the MPA and, may I say, management board are out of touch with what the public want from their police leaders. Yeah, yeah. I can't say that this is a total sample, but 500 people directly found the need to talk to me seems quite good to me. <laughs> so, if And just... I said, and, and he said, Kevin, yeah, but it's upsetting people. I said, well, can you feed it in with the Commissioner of the Management Board that since you've only got eight um, of the areas on your ballot scorecard green and the rest are either red or amber, I'm quite happy to come in and advise Management Board out and turn the other 12 uh, green for the false. <laughs> to which he said to me, Kevin, F off, stop causing aggravation, uh, meet me for a drink afterwards. All right, boss, I'll stop. Uh, the series had already finished. But uh, what I'm trying to tell you here yeah, is... Yeah. They don't get it. They don't get that, you know, uh, and, I, and I'll be blunt about this. Mm. I have a lot of time for Krista Dick, uh, but I thought she was far too quick to apologise, not on the front foot enough. That doesn't mean I don't think what's happened with Sadiq Khan is disgraceful. Mm. Mm. It's quite clear yeah. he lost his temper. And if you're uh, a senior leader in politics, you cannot lose your temper. You must mm. remain rational. Yeah. And if there's anything that we're hearing that is correct, which is he insisted uh, she should dismiss him, he should remind himself mm. that responsibility for setting up discipline boards is not that of the police. It's actually in London, the mayor's office for policing uh, and discipline boards are chaired by an independent, legally qualified person who is selected, appointed and paid by the mayor's office for policing. So if he's upset with anyone, he should be looking at his staff and saying instead of having appointing reasonable, uh, in this case, an ethnic minority chair, uh, perhaps you should appoint fascists um, mm. who do what I want. My point is mm. um, the way he is approaching the media and speaking about the most senior police officer in the country is totally out of order mm. uh, and says more about him than it does about a woman who's behaved with great dignity 
albeit I think she apologises too much. So if we just take a slight change of direction, obviously you, when you left policing, you uh, stepped into, you know, you applied, as you said, to the role of the PCC. And, you know, so for me, um, my, you know, my view of PCCs was that that was uh, another unwelcome gift, in my view, from David Cameron. Uh, and I believe there was an element there of trying to... Another case of divide and rule, because if you put another layer of um, political uh, a political oversight into what is already an incredibly complicated and messy policing landscape, uh, then you're going to create make it much harder for policing to ever sort of push back against government. I mean, what was your whenever they announced the sort of the creation of PCCs? What was your general feelings about that? I mean, can, can I infer that because you applied for that role that you were supportive of the notion of a PCC? Or was it that you thought, well, if, if you're going to create the PCC role, then if anybody's going to do that, it's going to be me. What was your the second. view? Second. The second. Right. The yeah. second. So, so as a, the bottom so, line on it is, you've got to be pragmatic about this. I care passionately about the police, as you can see, the way mm. I, I, I speak about it now. Um, and I actually care passionately more about the weak and vulnerable, the people. That's why I did policing. Hmm. So I have never been weak on standards and I will never protect or defend criminal, corrupt, jobbish, nasty, horrible people. So hmm. every one of these people that people are banging on about have been out of order of late in the Met Police and elsewhere. Quite right. There's no place for them in policing. They shame what I spent my life doing and my family did. But hmm. back to your point, the bottom line on it is at that time, we could have either sat there and I could have sat there and said, yeah, you know what? It's going to be more political control of the police um, or I can get involved. And do you know what I thought I'll do? Because you've got to be wise in life. And I'm, I was I learned wisdom, political wisdom, too late in life. Hmm. And I've learned to have kept my mouth shut a bit more. Bear in mind, I was qualified for ACPO, got outstanding grades, grades off the strategic command course. I probably would have ended up a chief constable or even one of the commissioner grades in the Met, but mm. I had too much to say that frightened people. So mm. despite 40 attempts to get an ACPO post around the country, uh, which I suspect must be a record, I achieved a temporary one at the end, thanks to Tim Godwin uh, giving it to me. So I'm grateful because it boosted the pension. But mm. back to my point, I learned, uh, partly because my brother said to me, Kevin, we're really disappointed in you. Uh, why is that? He said, you know how to do it. You could have got to the really top and made it better for us, but you had to gob off too much at senior officers. Hmm. You could have been an assistant commissioner if you'd have learned to button it a bit more. <laughs> now, for your brother, who at the time was a top, top grade uh, detective to say that to you, was serious feedback, and I had to think he was right. Hmm. So why did I go for PCC? Because I, too late in life, had learned that lesson. I thought, if I become one, I can perhaps do something to redress this balance from within the tent. And the yeah. truth of the matter is, because, because Surrey is a completely conservative county, um, I thought, I'll go, I'm going to approach the Tories and say, I'll do it for you. Because mm -hmm. I knew you couldn't beat the Tories in that county. Yeah. Uh, and the conversation went something along the lines of, uh, phone up central office, I'd be interested in doing that. Uh, and they said, are you a member of the Conservative Party? No, I'm not. And they said, um, 
Well, I'm afraid that's it. I said, oh, I'll tell you what. This is my name. Write it down, please. Google it. Hmm. Uh, and then go and talk to your boss. I'll call you back in 10 minutes and say, this man is going to be the next PCC in Surrey. You might want him to be a Tory. They called me back in 10 minutes and said, you've got a buy to the selection. That is a fact. That's what happened. Because at central office, they looked and thought, if this guy who's already on the media with a media profile, senior cop starts working. And what a lot of people forget is their own policy exchange uh, researched the public. Mm. Uh, and the figures for the public were somewhere of the order of about 65% of the public thought the next PCC in their county should be a, a former police officer. Mm. Another 20 odd percent thought they should be a military officer. Right. I added up to 85% in, didn't I? Yeah. My <laughs> But my point is, sounds arrogant, but that's literally how I dealt with it. And I did get a buy. Yeah. But I then went in front of some of the police hating uh, Tory MPs, Paul Beresford being one, the New Zealand dentist, yeah. uh, and also Chris Grayling. Um, and despite the fact that um, I explained why I thought I would win, they just blocked me. Um, interestingly enough, Dominic Rabb uh, backed yeah. me. I know how it went, and I'll tell you how it went. Dominic Rabb was a more intelligent, brighter one. Uh, in fact, bright one. Back me, but they knocked me back. Mm. And they took a, a lady uh, who was an activist for the Tory party. And what's really interesting now is the policy exchange polling had less than 10% of the public thought someone involved in politics should have that job. Now, what happened around the country at that stage is all three political parties decided to run candidates. And without exception, the majority of their candidates, whether ex-councillors or ex-MPs or ex-political activists. So they all decided to ignore what 90% of the polling said. So when it suits them, they look after their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah I thought, very obvious. I thought, sod you, I'm going to run as an independent. And because of the fact they had this system called second preference voting, I won 10 of the constituencies on first preference. And when they counted up all the second preference votes, I won. Brilliant. That's why I became a police and crime commissioner. Now, back to the point, what did I do? I then thought, do some good, get to the point of influence. Don't make a real nuisance of yourself, but get on the Home Secretary's finance group, because that's where the power is. Yeah. And get on the police minister's group uh, on operational policing ideas. So I managed to get on both of those to, if you like, add my input as best I could on those situations. And I remember one conversation at this particular group. There are about half a dozen chief constables present. Uh, and I said, I'm really disappointed here at what the chief constables are advising the Home Secretary. What you're telling her is you're all going to move the, and reshuffle the deck chairs while the Titanic's sinking. The issue is here, there's not enough money for policing. Let's give realistic advice to the Home Secretary. Yeah. But of course, the Chief Constables all sit there in stunned silence, don't they? Well, that was uh, one of one of my one of the points I make again and again in my book is that during that horrible period from sort of 2010 onwards, um, you know, the rank and file were completely ignored. Their views were completely ignored. Um, the Federation were ignored, the, the SUPTS Association were ignored, weren't they? Um, but 
chief constables, it seemed to me, were deafeningly silent during that entire period. And was that your perception? Yeah, well, interesting, you see. Interesting, because one of the other things I decided to get on, because I wanted to influence for the benefit of the police, was I got on the police negotiating board, as was, but as an official side member. Hmm. So I would sit in a closed office with member representatives of the Scottish office, Northern Ireland office, home office, hmm. uh, chief constables, and a couple of police and crime commissioners, while we were discussing uh, what we thought were reasonable offers for pay and expenses, etc., for police officers. Hmm. And we were involved in such discussions about changing to discipline regulations, etc. Mm -hmm. And I was extremely disappointed to see the way in which ambitious young ACPO officers who were appointed on behalf of ACPO were quite happily selling their workforce out down the drain when mm. their own uh, ACPOA chief officers association were negotiating different pay deals for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I found that all, uh, and well, you know, there was one particular instance, and people remember this, this is when they decided they'd give the police a 1% pay rise. And the police negotiating board, led by the ACPO reps, were saying, well, let's give them half a percent and hold the half a percent back uh, as a performance-related matter. Oh, my God. And I'm saying, don't be ridiculous. You're crushing the morale of your own workforce. And as a representative of the public, mm. I've got to speak up on behalf of the public who elected me mm. and make it clear to you, chief officers, if you don't look after the morale of your constables, they won't look after my constituents. So give them the whole half percent with the other half percent, please. Yeah. So well, it let me make it me. clear if people don't know, that's where we were. And the reason I did it was actually I'm representing the people who elected me. And the people who elect me want a workforce who are well motivated, which means pay them properly, look after them. Mm hmm. So, don't swallow management speak when you don't understand the fundamentals mm. of how you deliver your business. Yeah. The police product is delivered through 85% people, not machines, not technology. So if you don't look after the 85% of the, if you like, units that deliver production for you properly by being emotionally intelligent and understanding how you motivate them, maintain, mm. if you like, their goodwill and stop them leaving, then you're not going to achieve in the way in which you want. And I'm afraid far too many chief officers have been silent on some of the key tools for that, which is money, pensions, yeah, uh, yeah. and a little bit on hygiene factors, which you would call really their accommodation and staff, uh, and far too accommodating. Now, going back to PCCs, one of the problems you've got is because a police and crime commissioner can decide who can be the next chief constable, what that means for the assistant chief constables and the deputy chief constables, they're going to be very careful with the police and crime commissioner because they know that he or she is going to be the person who's going to decide who's going to be the next chief constable, which is why there's been a real problem now hmm. in getting a large field for most chief constable posts, Cleveland yeah. being an example, Yeah, because most people don't bother to apply because they know the job is always nailed on now with the deputy chief constable or the senior assistant chief constable who's made sure they've got a great relationship as a yes person for the police and crime commissioner because the police and crime commissioners quite frankly are politicians who know nothing about policing so at that level they're very easy to manipulate unless they are an ex-police officer 
like mm. some of us were at first, because you can see them coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting dynamic then. Um, and I know that um, I know that you had a tricky relationship towards the end with Lynn Owens, the chief of Surrey. And, you know, probably there's probably no point in rehearsing this. Specific... Well, I go, let me challenge that. I had an excellent relationship with Lynn Owens, the chief constable of mm. Surrey. In fact, I extended her contract. Right. Uh, and thought very highly of her. Until I got a series of HMIC reports, mm. which were quite damning on matters like child protection, child abuse, management of serious and organised crime, protecting vulnerable people, women, and so on, mm. putting us uh, towards the bottom of the pile. Right. So I sent her a letter requiring improvement. That is all I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, if the media choose to spin it differently right. and get hold of the HMIC reports, that's how it is. What yeah. I did is discharge my duty appropriately. I did mm. not have a difficult relationship with yeah. him. Yeah, no, so it's I think to be fair, um, you're right. How that was reported then, let's put it like that. It was reported that there was that was a tricky relationship. But the point I was well, it wasn't to... in the end because yeah, I always yeah. came on and said, including on Radio 4 today, uh, where a uh, very senior ex-cop started to basically slag me off mm. about quotes about quotes that I'd made. Mm. And I said, have you read the HMIC report? No, I'm, re I'm quoting verbatim what the HMIC reports say about Surrey. Mm -hmm. So I said nothing when, when it eventually hit the surface because I dealt with it quite correctly, mm. quietly with a closed letter to her, which mm. no one saw. Mm. But of course, it's all disclosable under FOI. Yeah. So it all came out. I then, of course, quite rightly... Mm. Um, explain what happened. Yeah. So, so um, I suppose the, no the, tricky the, relationship. No, no, no. Excellent. So, yeah, excellent yeah. until three months. Three months before yeah. uh, she left the force to become the, the head of the NCA. Um, by which point I'd started to get these dreadful reports back. Mm. So when you first came into that role, putting that sort of you know controversy, call it what you want to one side then. When you first came into that role... I'll call it, I'll call it quite correctly as the elected PCC discharging the duties of my office mm. quietly with no fuss and then as a result of FOIs, the media deciding to run with a little story with intent to embarrass the Home Secretary, right. not Lynn Owens because by then the Home Secretary had appointed her and there are elements of the media, the ones who sought to embarrass her, mm. mm. i.e. the Telegraph, who really the ones who ran with it, who wanted Boris to get the job in the future. So Lynn Owens' name, if you like, became mm. a football in a, in a game aimed at kicking Theresa May. Yeah. So and that's what happened. So Theresa May, obviously, in I think it'd be, it would be, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that that is someone who is hated by policing, by police. Most police officers have been around, have been around um, a bit, and and is probably uh, seen as the single most uh, damaging person to um, inflict herself on policing. So that's, I believe that. I, I think most police officers believe that Theresa May has been cat catastrophic for policing. Do you think? What's your take on that? Do you think that she was just badly advised or do you think she had it in for the police? Well, she's the Secretary of State for Policing, so she, or, or for the Home Office, so she carries the can. 
and she has had a catastrophic uh, effect in damaging the delivery of policing for the public. I know for a fact that for more than 18 months, she refused to speak to the head of ACPO, Sir Hugh Ald, former chief constable of the police service of Northern Ireland, and would not appoint him as the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, an mm. excellent man. So I know she had that view. I also know that in what I believe was an act of spite, she sold off the police staff college, <coughs> Brams Hill, which interestingly enough, Lord Herbert, who's now chief executive of the College of Policing, who was one of what were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, yeah. Theresa May's advisors at that time, is now saying that they need to have a police staff college again. <laughs> that's, that's, that's something I find bizarre that the, the chair of the College of Policing was was party to the dismantlement yeah, of yeah. the British Police Service. I just find yeah, that yeah. such a such a surreal fact. Well, you know? well, well, I mean, what's quite disappointing, before they decided to do away with that, they didn't bother to get out the papers of parliamentary select committees in the like, late 40s, early 50s, that said, bear in mind, most of those parliamentarians had served in the Second World War as officers, who said that the police need a police staff college to bring their chief inspectors, superintendents, ACE, assistant chief constables, etc., cetera, uh, if you like, forward the next stop to, step to lead uh, in the way in which they subsequently have done. Because yeah. there was a period in time where every single chief inspector in the country did six months on the junior command course at Bramshill, and every single superintendent did four months on the independent in, intermediate command course at Bramshill, and any chief superintendent who got selected for the strategic command course did six months on the strategic command course instead of the six weeks of modules they now do. Mm, yeah. So catastrophic, and you are right, quite bizarre. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I wasn't w working or mixing or moving within those circles at that time, but there is de there's definitely a, a strong suspicion in policing that the Tories hate the police. Now, I'm not sure whether that is true or not or, or why, why if that is true and i'm not saying it is but you know why do you think this government have been so damaging to policing it, do you what is your well, we theory need to look at his, we need we need to look at history and why uh, the police were set up they were set up to deal with the hoi polloi the dissidents uh the unruly in our inner cities and in London in particular and so it developed elsewhere. In some ways, to protect what the haves had mm. from the have-nots. Mm. Uh, and that's partly uh, where the history comes from. What's happened, uh, if you look at, I think, some... Uh, in, and there's very interesting... TV series that was on about 30 years ago, which I think demonstrates the way police were perceived of at that time. Mm. The local beat PC in a series called Upstairs Downstairs, he would sometime come down the servant stairs and have a glass of porter and a piece of cake with Mr. Hudson, with, uh, Mr. Hudson the butler and Mrs. Bridges the cook. The two head servants would have a beer and a piece of cake with the local beat officer because the police didn't come in the front door mm. except in one part of the series where the son who was a captain in the lifeguards 
one of the prestigious regiments of the household division, had got in a bit of trouble with an actress. Hmm. And one day, two detective inspectors from Scotland Yard with bowler hats turned up and knocked on the front door. And Mr. Hudson went and saw Lord Benham and he said, my Lord, there are two detective inspectors here from Scotland Yard about uh, Mr. Sansa. Oh, show them into my study and give them a glass of my best scotch. And so they were appropriately humble, but actually, no, appropriately respectful, but actually relatively robust about the issue of what their son had been up to uh, with this particular actress. That relationship has never really changed, I think, in terms of the perception of people with money. And having policed in Chelsea as an inspector and being involved in a stop once uh, where a vehicle was pulled over by an officer for drink drive and the woman jumping out of a big BMW, jumping out and saying, don't you know who I am? I'm the Lady So-and-so. Producing our passport, which said Lady So-and-so. Inspector, this man, this man or this constable wants me to take a breath test. And I said, well, I suggest you take the breath test, my lady, or he's going to arrest you. <laughs> now, I've similarly been a constable uh, in Canham Row, as I said, and I've seen the way some of the MP spoke to me, some polite and some dismissively when I'd asked to see their pass, went to various buildings. But what I would say is this. The Conservative Party know that the police are a necessary evil. But you see flashes of how they're really viewed. If you look on social media and the way people talk about the police and they should know their place and they should be productive and, you know, open the gate for me because I'm on my bicycle. Mm. Uh, which he subsequently lost in a yeah. high court case. Cost or few, they didn't a, like it. Cost him a few quid, didn't it? They didn't like it when Bob Quick, uh, as an assistant commissioner, uh, came in and found pornography um, on one, a member of the parliament, one of Theresa May's closest acolytes' computer. They didn't like it at all. Uh, and they don't like it at the moment when they're uh, potentially. You're going to have to answer a few questions about Partygate. So what do the Conservatives think about the police? I think they think they're a necessary evil. I think they think they're blue-collar workers, which mm. is why they partly keep them uh, D, keep uh, keep the police in their place. Mm. Uh, and they pay them and they treat them the way they are because they don't like the police to get too uppity. Because when, when uh, Margaret Thatcher accelerated Edmund Davis and started to move the police from a position of having to live in police houses to buying houses out in Isha and Bromley uh, and living amongst the rest of ordinary middle-class people, uh, I think they started to think, my goodness me, we're paying them too much. Let's cut their rent allowance, which, of course, is what the Sheehy inquiry, which was David Cameron's little gift was. And yeah. if we now look at where we are, one of the first things that uh, Tom Windsor, the rail regulator, did uh, when he got into policing, he decided police constables are paid too much for what they're, where they join at, so he cut 5,000 off their basic pay, thinking this is too much for someone straight out of school. Well, whether yeah. or not it is or not, what it is, it's not nearly enough now to attract 
uh, 12 years service, regular army sergeant, petty officer in the army, or a junior captain after an eight year short service commission who also joined the police, or teachers or senior nurses who also joined the police. They don't do it anymore because mm. it's not enough money. Mm. So if we start talking about why we're having some of these problems, it's because we're not necessarily quite pitching uh, some of the better people, which is slightly more mature, more reasonable people. So having to recruit young people coming in with a load of student debt or people straight from school. Yeah. So what do you, you think? Know nothing uh, about life. What do you think? Because um, the, the, the sort not of saying they're bad people. But what I'm saying is they don't have scattered amongst them a leavening of more experienced people like me, because I didn't join until I was 26. Mm. And I'd been both a reservist army officer and run a construction site for three years as a site engineer. So I had a very different view to some of the constables when I first came on shift in 1979, which is why after the first day, no one spoke to me. <laughs> uh, the reason for that being is because he spoke to some black people in a racially offensive way. Um, and since at the time I'd just recently finished boxing for my parachute regiment battalion, and I was now wrestling for the Met and I was pretty strong and fit at 26, goes far as to say a serious street fighter, but mm. I was as they called me on day one, a sprog, as my puppy walker, as they called him, hmm. I did that with these people and had not, not even spoke to me the whole shift. I thought I need to start the conversation now as we walk back to the police station for some reason. And as we passed a surreptitious doorway, I pulled him in and said, you talk to black people like that again, as I had him by the throat by now, hmm. and I'll knock your effing head off, you hmm. racist C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And step back straighten my uniform and we continue patrolling, patrolling back to the Nick. The next three days, my conversations with my puppy walkers were fairly similar because they yeah. were by, by now all blanking me. Yeah. Uh, day four, I was called in to see my uh, inspector. He said, Hurley, I don't know what, you, what you've done, but you are a complete C. Everyone on the, on the uh, relief effing hates you. <laughs> which I said, that's not a problem. What I'm seeing so far, I don't think much of them either. <laughs> so you knew, uh, he you said, knew well, your mind back in those days. Well, as well, well, hang on. He said to me, well, you'll, you'll have to patrol by yourself. I said, not a problem. And I, because I was from Lewisham and I knew what to look for, my dad and brother in the job, every day I used to piss them all off by bringing a prisoner in. And for six months, no one spoke to me, including I learned the best way to bring my prisoner back was either walking back or stop a passing cab or take him back on the tube because they wouldn't even come out with the van for me sometimes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's madness. Uh, so you let get, me tell you, let me tell you. you know, what do you get? Can I ask about how the job was? Can I ask you? I was at the forefront in 79 of speaking out about some of those behaviours. So here's a question for me, nothing to do with policing, really, more about you. Where do you get your confidence from, Kevin? Because you are, I think you are one of the most outrageously confident people I think I've ever spoken to in my entire life. Where do you get your confidence from? Life experience. Uh, being joining a boxing club when I was 15 in Woolwich, a boys boxing club. Barely scraping through P Company for Airborne Forces, which is one of the most physically but most mentally demanding tests a human being can do as a young lad. Uh, an extremely brutal mm. thing to do and learning if you're an airborne soldier, you cannot be defeated. Mm. 
So I can remember one time walking down Villiers Street in full uniform on my own because no one would work with me as a constable. And four yobs, Skinner jobs walking up to me saying, let's get this little one. And as they walked towards me, they started gobbing off. And I thought, be proactive here. So I headbutted the first one, drew my stick, put two of them down and the other one ran off. At which point I thought, I better nick one. <laughs> uh, so I did. So, I mean, where do I get my confidence from? I suppose I have got an inner confidence, inner insecurity in some ways. Were you, were you a confident we kid? Were you a confident kid? No, no. You weren't. I was a gobby kid, but not confident. Gobby. I have got an inner insecurity. I've been grateful that a lot of people have taught me how to be a leader, taught mm. me to be a better public speaker, a better a motivator. I've learned some great governors in the, in the police uh, and one or two excellent uh, senior NCOs or sergeant majors in the in the uh, airborne forces over the years. Um, I'm lucky enough to have had a bit of an education. I suppose my mum got behind me doing that, if I'm truthful. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think doing the strategic command course at the end, uh, where I did a, a 360 uh, feedback, because at the time I was in the City of London Police, and one person, most of the people said, uh, people were following me anywhere, including off a cliff, charismatic leader. But one person said, walks roughshod over others, won't listen to other people's opinions. And I knew that person well. And he was one, he was probably the person I respected most in that force, another superintendent. But it was meant to be a 360, but I knew what way they'd written it would be him. And I thought, I need to change myself. Mm. Uh, and so I started to read the work of a guy called Daniel Goldman, emotionally intelligent, to become more self-aware. So although I've come across a bit full of myself at the moment, I think, you know, self-awareness, I'm trying to get a message out, and there isn't time yeah. Yeah, to be yeah, humble. Yeah. There isn't yeah, time yeah. to be humble. I think, you know, I've learned that. Um, I've been supported by a few people, but, you know, when push comes to shove, I suppose because as a reservist army officer, I've sat in officers' messes with... The guards officers who are very full of themselves, which other people might feel is uh, the way they are, because I've been an elected politician responsible for 11 parliamentary constituencies, and I took it away from the most powerful parliamentary party in the country, because I am sought after by the media to commentate, mm. because I've given evidence hundreds of times in all the Crown Courts, contested evidence on many occasions, worked with some great coppers. I don't know, it's just kind of built built in me, my sense. You, um, you slightly, know, remi you slightly remind me of, because um, we've never, we never met each other or spoken to each other until yesterday on the phone, had we? Um, yeah. But we know a lot of people in common, obviously, just because of, uh, you know, a, a shared sort of history, I suppose, in many ways, with the Met. But uh, you kind of remind me a little bit, and I, I did exchange text messages with him today, actually, because I'm going to get him on the podcast or something like you. Mick, Mickey Neville, you'll know Mick Neville. Um, Mick Neville. And uh, Mick and I worked at Clapham together, and uh, Mick used to always make me laugh because he he was... Um, uh, he used to work on his own quite a lot, and he was a fantastic thief-taker, um, f absolutely fearless, um, but a heart of gold, and uh, used to, all of the yobs and all of the drug dealers would 
um, you know, run a mile to avoid crossing his path. And um, and he had that very bluff, you know, northern kind of way about him as oh. well. And uh, and I took over from from him for a period of time. He used to be the um, permanent beat officer on Two Beat, which is Dorset Road in Clapham, Stockwell. Yeah, yeah. And I took I over from him. Yeah. And uh, it was funny because trying to fill Mick Neville's shoes was uh, was uh, uh, well impossible, impossible, you know. But but listen, awesome. let just, me tell you, just... I know Nick really well. Awesome thief taker as a yeah. DC. He actually, I was actually as a DI. I'd been on the Brixton robbery squad. I was tactical advisor uh, for Operation Eagle Eye for the whole force. Mm. So all these plain clothes cars that the Met brought in, and some of the covert uh, covert uh, surveillance kit they brought in for local crime squads, I was behind that. But one of the team who was giving me some ideas as a PC mm. and shaping force policy on street robbery was Mick Neville. Yeah, <laughs> and Mick Neville came on in the end to develop one of the greatest ideas that the Met have failed and policing have failed to uh, exploit yet is VIDO, Video video Identification Officers, mm. where at one time every borough, in the same way that they have scenes of crimes officers, had visual identification officers whose job it was to know the footprint of every single piece of CCTV on their ground, at every incident go out and get the CCTV evidence, prepare, prepare it in the correct way, to form identifications, get it networked around the Met, to get it spotted, and it produced fantastic results on assaults and robberies. Mm. And Mick Neville was behind that. And to the shame of the Met, they've forgotten that and they're being cut back. The mm. other thing he came up with was an amazing idea, which again, to the shame of the Met, is not being exploited, is super recognisers. Mm. Right. were people, but they were brilliant Um a brilliant concept. Mick Neville is yet another example of one of these people in the police got to be a DCI. I had to protect him, actually, in the end. I had to protect him because he upset chief constables around the country saying that the, <laughs> the way they use CCTV is a waste of time. Yeah. And we ended up getting chief constables wanting to complain and get him, get him taking them out. And I had to go to Tim Godwin and say, look, leave him alone. He's a top man. You know he's a top man. And Tim Godwin basically pushed him off. Because, of course, we use CCTV for counter-terrorist work. But mm. what Mick's point was, we should be using it much more for antisocial behaviour, burglary, and so on, because it would be a paradigm shift in achieving mm. detections and serving the public. But they couldn't see that. Mm. They would mm. not make the investment to do it. Yeah, um, but, yeah um, he's, he's, certainly but a forth, he's certainly a forthright character. Listen, just one final question before we wrap up. Um, what do you think needs to happen in terms of uh, trying to put the wheel back on for policing? You know, what do you think are the priorities? Money, 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 money. Right. And I'll talk about it in, in how I think it needs to be done. I'm not even going to talk about a few of these scandals that are going on at the moment. Quite frankly, some of those are partly a symptom of it and others are red herrings that would happen anyway. You know, Cousins was a red herring. That could have happened anywhere, anytime to policing somewhere in the country. If you get a psychopath, that's what happens. And look at the psychopaths that the National Health Service have had. To my knowledge, I think we've had three nurses murdering patients. We've had Dr Shipman uh, murdering patients and we've had the uh, person who works in the mortuary uh, doing worse. So, you know, it happens everywhere. Yeah. But what is that? Money, money, money. So, I don't know which end to start, but let's start at the bottom end. If you don't pay your workforce properly, 
they will become disgruntled, fed up. They will leave. You will invest mm. in them, but they will leave. Some will become corrupt. Mm. So and I've advised police in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other parts of the world, and I see what it's like to live in a country where police are corrupt. People have got no idea what corruption means. It means every time you're stopped uh, by a police officer in your car, you're going to have to pay money. Every time you want to make a crime allocation, you've got to pay money. Every time you go get arrested, you've got to pay money. That's what it means. So pay the police properly. Re find a way, find a way of recreating the golden handcuffs for the investment you've put into police officers. Because the problem you've got when you invest huge amounts of money, particularly into detectives and financial investigations, intelligence management, and so on, what you find is that the banks, the financial organizations, and large companies will double their salary overnight because they want them, because they know what to do and they know how to solve problems. If you look at uniform response officers, one thing, uh, one thing that, please be quiet. If you look up response officers, uh, one thing that they have all uh, learned is they don't know how good they are at mm. solving problems, at taking decisions and getting stuff done. But do you know who's realised that? The railway companies. Mm. They all know. So for train drivers who need to think quickly, solve problems, deal with the public, they're filling up all the train driving slots in the country with ex-coppers. They're hemorrhaging out. And train guards waiting for their chance at double their money. So if you don't have a way of maintaining people to preserve uh, your investment, uh, this is what you're going to get. Hmm. People will leave. Um, or worst case, worst case, one, one second. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, people, right. we will lose. We will lose uh, people. So you've got all of all of that dynamic going on. You know, you've got. Let's be honest about this. A lot of people don't know this. A Majesty's Chief Inspector of Constabulary, Sir Dennis O'Connor, his son, young Dennis, came in on the fast track as a police officer. He moved very quickly to be a DCI, and he was very good. Even the Chief HMI's son walked away for the financial sector. Yeah, yeah. You know. That's what we've got. Yes, yeah, we're, uh... we're not facing uh, reality um, about what's going on. One of my deputies, uh, police and crime commissioner's son, who himself was a former chief superintendent, a great guy, very different to me, but a great guy, uh, the sensible head. Um, one of his sons, two degrees, sergeant running the Croydon Robbery Squad, excellent officer, qualified for inspector, went off to the private sector. Why? He said, there's nothing down for me, Dad. I've got my two degrees. I'm a white male. I'm not going to move forward like I, like I could elsewhere. He nearly tripled his salary within four years in the private sector. Right. That's the kind of quality of people that we have right now in the police. So pay them properly. Yeah, yeah. Now, the next thing, the next thing, invest in training properly at all mm. levels from constable to the top mm. and revamp what we're doing. What we're doing now, in my view, the PEQF stuff, they've all got a degrees. I don't think it's the right way forward. What is right about it, they are teaching officers 
to think laterally and think for themselves in a way in which you're not a training school. Mm. But that's because they're investing in, in them longer. What we need to do is continue with the 16 months, 16 weeks of basic inculcation of this is how you wear your uniform. This is how you stand up. This is how you deal with incidents on the street. And this is the various laws you will have to decide upon in five seconds. So you're going to learn them word perfect. That's what we need to do. Then work on the emotional intelligence side of life and take them forward then into the areas which the, the graduate side of life is doing. But pay them properly. Yeah. Take them, take, keep them off the street when we're doing it. Don't expect them to be doing projects and stuff whilst they're dealing with shifts and going to court and running families and we're paying them peanuts for what we're asking. Let's invest in it and say, we are going to train them for maybe two years full time, like some other countries do. Let's drill in the law a bit, what it means to be a police officer. Then let's move them forward and develop them laterally. If you do that, guess what? You'll have the right ethos. You'll have emotionally intelligent people with the correct values and standards and understand if you like spending time, understanding uh, the, the demographics um, of the areas they're going to police, mm. and we are not going to have this sickening, misogynist, bigoted, racist, homophobic nonsense mm. that the, we've just seen these constables sending out six years ago uh, at Charing Cross. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to be straight with you. That is yeah. not, yeah, although yeah. that's an extreme end, I think, of some of that stuff. Because we've seen a bit of it on um, some of the mates' tweets of, uh, of the psychopath cousins. Mm. We know it is not isolated. Yeah. And I know even now in the police service, they some of them think it's funny that if someone leaves their pocketbook lying around because mm. they've run off to an urgent assistance call or a suspect on premises when they're putting a crime report on the Chris, mm. someone will come up and draw an erect penis on their pocketbook. Mm. I know that goes on. Mm. I know it goes on. Now, that tells me that there is something badly wrong with the ethos, the values and standards that they do that. And I'll tell you why it's wrong. A, it's gross, but B, it's totally unprofessional because that pocketbook could the next day be used for the vital description of a rapist, a murderer, or someone who just stabbed their colleague. And they turn up at the Crown Court with it. And you know what? The defending barrister picks up the pocketbook to look at the description and finds that and shows it to the jury. Mm. That is how unprofessional yeah. a lot of our young constables are. Yeah. Because if they're not doing it themselves, they are not speaking out about it. Yeah. And I know it happens. Because yeah, I've well, discussed it. I definitely it's, think I definitely think um certainly in you but, know, I, I've towards the end of my career, I definitely noticed that there was a an inability to see the seriousness of the job that a lot of them were actually doing. I don't Correct. think they really actually. Well, it comes up it. to my point. So it's money again. So we said money, pay them, golden handcuffs, stop them leaving. The next bit is money for the training to be full time, not day release. If we go, and, and what we need to do urgently for the police to really raise the standard is we do need to draw them in for 16, 18 weeks of what I'll call police boot camp, hmm. where they understand the what they're doing is important. The uniform is important. You don't stand there with your hands in your pockets. You wear your headdress. You mm. clean your shoes. You clean your fingernails. You don't have your hair down. You don't have nail varnish on all over, nail polish on, that mm. kind of stuff. You take the time, if you like, 
if we're not going to clean the cars, to clean them yourselves. You take a pride in it. When you walk through the CID office and there's no one there, you pick up the phone because it's our public calling our police. They don't care who answers the phone. You happen to be a traffic police officer or a foot patrol officer or response. They call in the CID. They want to hear someone. So you say, hello, madam. Yes, uh, the officer's not here at the moment. Uh, what's your problem? Well, I cannot deal with that for you, but I'm going to make sure they get the message. You send them an email. Uh, and you cover it to make sure that they're not going to leave by sending one to the supervisor. You don't let the ball drop. So you train them with that, and then you do the ethos, the values and standards, what we're all about. Because otherwise, we're going to get sticking plaster after sticking plaster. And I actually don't think or believe most of our police officers are bigots, racists, homophobes, or whatever but they do bring the values of young people in society into the police force where you've got a situation where in playgrounds, kids call each other gay because they think it's funny. And so it spreads and it goes forward from there. Or yeah. people inherit the values of parents or the bigoted views. Yeah. This is something that requires sophisticated additional training in terms of values and standards. That's money. Now, the next thing, because you've got to keep coaching and reinforcing and leading and intrusively supervising on occasion, you need more sergeants and inspectors who call themselves leaders and not supervisors, leaders, hmm. but you've got to pay for them. You can't have the situation that you had um, at Charing Cross where 120 people had one inspector. Is that what it one was? One acting man? sergeant. This is ludicrous. You've got to pay for them. And then the next thing you've got to do to make sure you've got good relationships in influencing the local medias and the local councillors is you've got to have the chief inspectors and superintendents to do that. So you've got to pay for the ones you've chopped out. Mm. So mm. it all comes back to money. Yeah. How do you get more money into policing? The no-brainer is you amalgamate all the 43 forces and the massive on-costs that are cut by having 43 false headquarters, 43 policy departments, 43 HR departments, 40 firearms training departments, 40 procurement departments, God knows what, will solve a lot of that problem for you. Yeah, but yeah. government has got to put its hand in its pocket and say, if policing is really important, and it seems like we all pretty much think it is these days, mm. then we should give us a tiny bit more money mm. Uh, and if that means that the Royal Navy uh, can, uh, has 10 less F-35Bs instead of the, you know, the slated 132, or they probably need 133 after the last one fell in the Mediterranean, they have 10 less, well, so be it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that kind of money is the money I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I do tend to think, unfortunately, that things are probably going to get worse before they get any better. Um, well, I, I don't. It's... I don't believe they will get better at the current time. I think. Mm. I think. Um, you know, I could see the writing on the wall in the in the mid between 2000 and 2010 because I was pretty senior then. I was working at ACPO HQ, uh, or I was either a chief super in the city or a temporary commander, uh, or I was HMIC. So I could see it. And because I'm hearing what my family are telling me um, and so on and socialising with cop 
I could already see how the morale was starting to go. And mm. I could see the fatal mistakes being made of cutting supervision levels and cutting training. It was already mm. going on then. Yeah. That, that boroughs were under pressure to reduce the number of people on day on monthly training days, mm. yeah. you know, back then. So yeah. when you start to do that, and I could see the failure to pay for infrastructure. You know, there are three things that drive human beings. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've all heard of them. Yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, survival instinct, that means pay and pensions. Herd instinct, that means, that means uh, being part of the organisation, feeling respected by your team, commendations, if you like. And the third one, where the police really can't help on that, is the sex instinct. But you know what? You pay enough people, they can get partners of the opposite sex, they can get houses, they can get cars to achieve that. So that's mm. covered, if you like, by re looking after the police in that way. But the fourth one that's not talked about, and it's, it's seen as an unseen element, is called hygiene factors. Mm. Hygiene factors are all about the quality of the way they're, they're treated. This is talking about their uniforms, their vehicles, their buildings, their canteens, their computers, uh, and their general infrastructure. If you don't make people value, feel like that, they're not proud. The mm. City of London Police, for example, had lovely canteens, beautiful uniforms, the best cars, mm. because the people felt value. And you talk to a City of London police officer, they still possess a great deal of pride in being a City police officer. Yeah, yeah. Because the yeah. force looked after them. Ironing but boards, boot cleaning stuff in the locker room, these things matter. That's why the city were always well turned out. But the Met and other forces don't invest in it. You've got to start with those basics. Yeah. How did I get the, let me, I'll give you one final point. How, how did I get a borough that had a totally green scorecard? The only borough in two, inner city borough in 2011 that did not have rioting with the heavily depressed uh, White City Estate, right next to the Westfield Centre, the largest shopping centre in Europe, and right next to the more depressed areas of Notting Hill and Paddington. How did that borough not have a single riot? Or, in the two years I was there, how did my team create an environment where not a single teenager got murdered in inner London? The main performance indicators. How did that happen? Not me, but my guys and girls I work with generated an environment where it was a pleasure to come to work. No one wanted to leave. Bear in mind, it's hard traveling. But what I did brought back their professional pride by absolutely insisting everyone polished their boots, cleaned their shoes, pressed their trousers, shaved before early turn. They went out smartly. They answered the phone. They wore their headdress on the streets and we never backed down. It's simple. It's simple. That's how you get it done. It just needs a chief superintendent like me when some people come on mutual aid, turning up in a carrier from Hounslow, it was at the time, for Chelsea policing uh, to come walking into the police station. And I said, good evening, uh, chaps. And they walked by me saying, all right, to react and go, just a moment, everybody. Um, you're police officers, aren't you? Yeah, you're all observing, aren't you? What do you notice on my shoulder? I think it looks like I'm the borough commanders, isn't it? So it, you can, if you like, say all right, but it is all right, sir. All right, I'll settle for all night, gov. 
But let me tell you, let me start now. Since we've got, let's have a look at you. All of you haven't cleaned your boots before you come to do duty on our borough. You, you, and you haven't shaved. You're the sergeant in charge and you haven't shaved. Get back on your carrier, go home and book off. Yeah, we're all less than five today. Well, that's bad luck, isn't it? <laughs> go home. We don't want people like that. Spread the word. Come and do football duty on our borough for overtime. Turn up looking like your Hammersmith and Fulham officer. That is how you bring back standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look after your officers, support them back. Oh, and by the way, I didn't do much paperwork when I was leading in that role. I had a great deputy who realised the most important thing he could do for me was order me a police mountain bike and a set of uh, police riding gear. So when I arrived, it was in my office. And I, if you like, led my borough every day by uh, looking at my paperwork giving it out to a crawling, ambitious young chief inspector, telling him the lines to take, telling him, don't tell the ACPO what to, what's going on unless I agree. Hmm. And if yeah. they want to know what's going on, they phone me. And I went out on patrol and worked with all the response PCs. It used to annoy them sometimes because they used to nick their prisoners. But hey, it was good <laughs> for morale. Kevin, I'm going to call it uh, uh, call an end to there because... Um, mainly because we've got to go out for dinner with some friends in a minute. Um, but can I just say, it's been fascinating. And the one thing I really love about doing this is that you get to speak to so many different people. This is going to be episode I think, 28 or something like that. Uh, I've yeah. spoken to some really fascinating people. Um, and, and one day, I think, you know, way in the future, hopefully, you know, maybe 50, 100 years time, people will be able to listen back to this kind of stuff. And, yeah. and, and it's going to be fascinating fascinating for historians fascinating for people to sort of listen to your voice and the voices of the other people who i've been speaking to so um you've had an amazing career you've done a fantastic job and i i wish you the very best with whatever it is you decide to do next and um thanks you know ever so much well, for coming on let me tell you this ian i could not have done this without working with fantastic uh, men and women both civilians police staff council officers social workers teachers and so on. I couldn't have done what I've done or enjoyed it in the way in which I did and dealt with some of the unpleasantness because I've had a few prolonged periods of sick from being assaulted. I couldn't have done it without them. Um, but I'll tell you this, my career is not over because if I can find a way to get in the mix for Commissioner Metropolitan Police, I intend to apply. Well, that would be a fascinating. Um, I mean, it's to say that you'd be a wild card would be uh, would be, I think, an understatement because there's so many people I think who are going to be going for that job. I suspect who will be, for want of a better word, corporate clones. And Correct. corporate clone, you you certainly are not. <laughs> no, and on top of that, of course, I've been an elected police and crime commissioner, and I've worked in war zones, advising at the highest government levels. Uh, where our daily attrition rate of police officers could sometimes be as many 50 killed a day. So that's a different type of candidate. Well, listen, I wish you the very best of luck and uh, let me know. I'll be, I'll be watching, obviously, you know, from, from up here in the Midlands, I'll be watching the whole thing with, uh, with a great, a great, great interest. Uh, it's going uh, to be, first of all, in the civil servants' decision-making who are going to do the paper sifting and set the criteria they'll say you've got to be a chief constable. So I will see whether or not having been a police and crime commissioner uh, counts or having been the senior police advisor for NATO in Afghanistan uh, counts by mm. comparison with having been chief constable, perhaps. 
I don't know, yeah. a smaller force. And we'll see that. But then I've got to go in the middle of Sadiq Khan and Pretty Patel. <laughs> oh my so God. I'm not sure what they're going to make of that. <laughs> oh, well, that would be a, a lot to be a fly in the wall when, whenever no, that let me tell you this, Ian. Let me tell you this, Ian. If they want to sort out some of the clear problems in the Metropolitan Police, they can either get someone who'll make them promises or they can get someone like me who guarantees they know what they are and guarantees they know what the solutions are because I will do it and I'll be ruthless. <laughs> Kevin, I wish you the very best of luck. Thanks ever so much for coming on and talking to me. And uh, It's good uh, chatting. Bye. You, you take care. Cheers and bye-bye-bye. So there you go. I did tell you, didn't I, right at the start, Kevin is quite a character and um, a real force of nature. I think that's probably the only way you can describe him, a force of nature. He's a one-man crime-fighting machine. And, uh, yeah, oh, my God. I, I feel like I need to go and have a lie down now after that. But, uh, yeah, no, it was really fascinating and uh, I hope you find it interesting too. Right, I'm going to leave you to it. Take care. Speak to you soon. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>